Well, let me just uh, echoes, echo Jerry's uh, welcome a few moments ago, uh, especially those of you uh, that are here that are visiting with us for the first time. Uh, I want you to know we consider it a great privilege to have you here uh, today, and uh, we take uh, very seriously uh, the opportunity that you've placed into our hands to uh, minister to you and to your family, and so thanks for, thanks for uh, checking us out today. But I also want to say for those of you that are regularly part of Northwest, I want to echo that same thing, uh, that I want to uh, remind you, and hopefully it's just reminding you of something that you know and are convinced of, uh, that we do take very seriously the shepherding of your souls as well. And uh, we're so glad that you have uh, taken the time and you've chosen uh, to be here to to worship with us at Northwest. Well, if you have your Bible or uh, some kind of other uh, device that you have a Bible on, Uh, If you turn to the Old Testament book of uh, Nehemiah, that's where we're going to be this morning. And really, we're going to be just in the first few verses of uh, chapter 1, primarily. Uh, But if you have your Bible open there, uh, if you lose interest in what I'm saying, you can at least read through the Word of God, and that will be a good and a a healthy thing for you to do uh, as well. Well, you know, over the course of human history, men and women have had their hearts broken for different things. Uh, for different causes, uh, for different people, groups. And each time that their hearts have uh, been broken, God has used them to see incredible things happen and for them to make a difference in their world. I I read this week, maybe some of you are familiar with him, about a man named uh, Bob Pierce. Bob Pierce was an American evangelist who, while on a trip uh, to Asia in the early 1950s, was overcome by the plight of homeless orphans that he saw on the streets. He told the story later on that a little girl approached him and and told him through an interpreter uh, that she was not able to attend school because her family had no money. The interpreter, who he would meet again about 10 years later, uh, told the story how she instinctively said to uh, Bob, without even thinking, she said to him, what would you do in a case like that? And him feeling the pressure to respond, he reached into his pocket and he gave what was in his pocket, which was a $5 bill. Here's the interesting thing, that that was the beginning of what we know today as a ministry called World Vision. Uh, World Vision this year will help 4 million children in well over 100 countries around the globe. Uh, Later, Bob wrote after that encounter with that little orphan girl on the streets there in Asia, he wrote in the front flyleaf of his Bible these now uh, famous words. He wrote, let my heart be broken with the things that break God's heart. That impassioned prayer is also what guided him as he founded an organization that most of us here this morning are familiar with. In 1970, Bob Pierce also founded Samaritan's Purse. His mission for that organization, as he wrote, was, quote, to meet emergency needs in crisis areas through existing evangelical mission agencies and national churches. In 1959, a journalist who was writing an article about Bob Pierce wrote this, Bob cannot help, cannot conceal his true emotions. He seems to me to be one of the few naturally, uncontrollably honest men I have ever met. I read that this week and I thought, wow, what a great thing to have said about you. He's one of the few naturally, uncontrollably honest men 
that I've ever met. It just means that Bob, as I read further, was an incredibly emotional, passionate man. When he was asked by Franklin Graham how to shake people out of their complacency, Pierce said he had become part of the suffering. He said, I literally felt the child's blindness, the mother's grief. It was all too real to me when I stood before an audience. It's not something, he said, that can be faked. One pastor wrote that Pierce prayed more earnestly and fervently than anyone else he'd ever known. He said it was though prayer burned within him. Bob Pierce functioned from a broken heart. Pierce would spend the rest of his life basically pleading with believers to have their hearts so in tune with God's heart that their hearts would be broken for the things that break God's heart. And I want to ask you uh, this morning as we begin in this passage in Nehemiah, I want to ask you, does your heart break for what breaks God's heart? In fact, I want to go really one step further with that question. Um, For some of you, has your heart ever in your memory, as far as you know it to be, has your heart ever broken for what you would have believed would have been the same things that God's heart breaks for? Has that ever happened to you? I want you to think about that this morning. Back to Nehemiah chapter 1. In 586 B.C., uh, we told you last week that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon invaded Jerusalem and literally took uh, almost all of the people into captivity uh, back to the city of Babylon. And for some 70 years, the uh, great city of Jerusalem, where the temple was, it was basically empty and almost, uh, as it would appear to be, a ghost town, uh, never to be remembered again except on the pages of history. I told you last week that in 539 B.C., Babylon was conquered by the Persians, and as a result of being conquered by the Persians, King Cyrus allowed the Jews an opportunity to go back to Jerusalem, and a small remnant of them did, about 50,000. The city had been unoccupied for about about 70 years, and you can imagine how desolate it was and how broken down it was. They did return some other people under the leadership of uh, three other men. Uh, Zerubbabel uh, led a group back, and then about 80 years later, a man that some of you are familiar with, Ezra, and under the leadership of Ezra, uh, they rebuilt the temple and uh, actually reestablished a spiritual foundation there in the city of Jerusalem. But they weren't able to rebuild the walls, and as a result, the the, uh, city was uh, vulnerable to attack, not to mention the temple because they were without protection. They were just literally a a city out in the desert that was just standing there alone, very vulnerable to hostile neighboring enemies. No one actually thought, in fact, if you read back even some of the secular historians, nobody ever actually thought that the, the, the walls of the city of Jerusalem would ever be rebuilt. They had tried and had not been able to accomplish that, and those walls would lie in ruin until God moves in the heart of an ordinary man named Nehemiah. And if there's one thing that you and I have seen over and over again in our study here that we've been in now for several months, it is that God delights in using incredibly ordinary people like you and like me. And so the book of Nehemiah begins about 40 years after the events of the book of Esther, almost 100 years after the first captives came back, about 150 years after the city of Jerusalem had first been destroyed. And 
that's where we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 1. It says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Hakaliah, we don't know really anything else about. That's how some of us may be someday if we have kids that do something great. Uh, they'll be known and they'll be saying, Kayla Eisner, the daughter of Brian Eisner, whoever he was, right? That's kind of what's happening here. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it says, now it happened in the month of Chislev, that would be late uh, December to, or late November to uh, mid-December, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, he says, I was in Susa at the citadel. Basically, the center of authority and government there in the Persian Empire. That's where Nehemiah found himself. And I would say to you this morning that that's where a lot of us find ourselves today. You say, I've never been to the Persian Empire. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, we find ourselves to be in very, very comfortable places. You might not consider your home to be uh, like the citadel in Susa, uh, but I guarantee you it's a lot better than what 95% of the world lives in. Most of us find ourselves to be in an incredibly comfortable positions, and that's where Nehemiah was. The text goes on to say in verse 2 that Hanani, one of Nehemiah's, uh, the inference would be later in the book of Nehemiah, one of his blood brothers, came with certain other men from Judah. We don't know their names. And it says, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. How are those people doing? How's the city? Verse 3, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The walls of Jerusalem, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. He hears this news and then I want you to focus in on verse 4. It says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, usually we don't tell you uh, the end of the story at the beginning of a story, but here I will for the benefit of those that are not familiar with the book of Nehemiah and for the sake of time this morning. We'll see in Nehemiah chapter 2 that Nehemiah will go before King Artaxerxes. He's very concerned about going before King Artaxerxes, much like Esther was going before Xerxes in the book of Esther. Not knowing what mood the king would be in that particular day when he was approached, Nehemiah thought, that was a potentially a, a life-changing event for him. But he goes before the king in chapter 2, and he asks the king for permission to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls of his hometown. He knows it won't be easy to do that, but he asks the king not only if he could go, but that if the king would kind of provide for him some of the resources necessary to go and to rebuild those walls. So he goes to the king, the king allows him to go, and those of you that know the story know that Nehemiah goes and he leads a great group of people and they actually get the job done, howbeit under incredibly difficult circumstances, they get the job done in just 52 days. It's a great story of what can God, God can do through us when our hearts are broken for what breaks His. Here's what I want you to hear this morning. People who want their hearts to break for the things that break the heart of God I really believe have to do four things. And these are four incredibly simple things. Yet if you're here this morning and you really want to have a heart that is broken for the things that break God's heart, I believe these characteristics that were true of Nehemiah's life will also be true of my life and your life as well. 
The first is that Nehemiah was willing to listen. You notice in the text that Nehemiah listened intently to the report that came back. First of all, he asked the questions. Have you ever talked to somebody that is perfectly content to tell you everything that they think you want to hear, but they never ask you any questions? How are you? How are you doing? It's always just about them. Nehemiah wasn't like that. Nehemiah asked questions. He got the report. He listened to it. Here's what I want you to understand. Your heart will never be broken for people or situations that you don't know about or understand. Your heart will never be broken for people, groups of people, situations that you do not know about or understand. This report that Nehemiah got was devastating to him. Most Bible scholars believe that it's quite possible that Nehemiah truly did not know the state of the city of Jerusalem. He didn't know that the walls were lying in ruin and the people lived in fear. They went to bed every night worrying about would they be attacked. He didn't know that although the temple had been rebuilt, it was incredibly vulnerable to the enemies around him. And when he heard this, he was devastated. Let me ask you, what do you think your response might have been if you would have heard that news about your hometown, where your parents had come from, where your grandparents had come from? Here you are 800 miles away. You've kind of made it. You're, you're comfortable. You've got a great job. I mean, we find out at the end of chapter 1 that he's the cupbearer to the king. It doesn't sound too official, but he was a pretty important guy. He would taste the food, taste the wine for the king before the king ate and drank it. Now, your job could end abruptly. You do understand that. But for as long as you had the job, it was a great job, right? He's very comfortable. He's eating good food. He's drinking great wine. He's living in the citadel there in Susa. He has, as far as career goes, he's arrived. Not too different from where some of us find ourselves today. Some of you, that would be the testimony of your life right now. You're in a position where you always wanted to be but never really thought you'd make it there. Some of you are making more money than you ever thought you would make. You're living in a bigger home. You're enjoying the nicest vacations. You're able to do things for your kids you never dreamt you'd be able to do. You are incredibly comfortable. And that's where Nehemiah found himself. What would your response be to the news that your hometown, there's destruction that's still there? The people need leadership. These walls need to be rebuilt. Some of us might have just simply said, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm very sorry to hear that. In fact, we're so spiritual, some of us here today, that we would have gone a step further. We would have said, I'm so sorry to hear that. I will pray for that, right? Because that's what spiritual people do, right? We say we're sorry, and then we say we'll pray about that. And of course, we most of the time forget to pray about that. But at least at the time being, when we're confronted by it, we're sorry, and we're going to pray about it. He could have justified it. He could have justified it by saying, look, hey, that city's been broken down for 150 years. I had nothing to do with it. In fact, my parents didn't really have anything to do with it. It was their ancestors. They were told clearly in God's law how they should behave, what they should do. And if they didn't, what would happen? And it happened. It's not my problem. They're getting what they've deserved. See, some of us prefer not to know what's going on. For some of us, information might bring a sense of obligation. And therefore, rather than getting the information, rather than listening to a situation, we prefer to stay ignorant. 
Here's the truth of the matter. Facts don't cease to exist because they are ignored. Right? Our world needs to learn that principle in a lot of different ways, right? But facts don't cease to exist because they are ignored. In order for us to be used by God to be part of the answer to the needs in our world, we have to be aware of the need. And this is why we're so passionate about encouraging you uh, to go on these short-term uh, mission trips. I'm so excited that a number of our high school kids will have opportunity to go to, uh, it's Missouri, right, Jerry? That they're going to, uh, to work with uh, kids uh, this, this, this summer. Uh, kids that, um, uh, that don't, haven't, don't, aren't growing up in a world with the mental capabilities that, that our kids have. And your hearts are going to be going to be broken in a new way because you're going to see things and you're going you're gonna to smell and taste and, and touch. And some of you, as Scott said earlier, you're going to have the opportunity to go with us to, to Kenya at the end of the year. It's one thing for me to tell you that there's a world that desperately needs Jesus, that there's a world that is hurting and dying and has physical needs. There are kids that are starving. There are people that are living underneath trees. It's another thing for you to go and you to actually see it. I like for you to see, to smell, to taste, to listen, to touch. Our hearts will only break for what breaks God's heart when we, are, when we listen and we are aware of the needs around us. Nehemiah listened and look at his response in verse 4. It says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. Secondly, if we want our hearts to break, we must be moved emotionally. And for many of us, that means that we're, we're going to need to shed some tears. The second point is that you need to cry if you want your heart to break for what breaks God's. You know, you can tell a lot about a person by what makes them laugh or cry, can't you? Uh, for some of us, it's when our team loses at the buzzer. Uh, these events, are you with me? They can make grown men cry. Can't they, Carolina fans? I mean, I, I, don't, I, I don't know if it's too soon, all right? But I, I'm just saying, I, I know that that's what can happen. For some of us, it's just simply a fictional love story on the Lifetime channel or the Hallmark channel, right? We hear something and we just, start, we just start crying. For some of us, it's, it's just disappointment of not having a, our life go exactly as we would have planned for it to go for our comfort. I used to not cry uh, that often, and um, I don't know what happened. Um, it, it, it wasn't that I didn't feel deeply. I think I'm an incredibly emotional person, but it didn't necessarily, you know, come out of my eyeballs. It just didn't happen. It was a pretty rare occasion when I would shed tears. And now at age 50, it's, it's amazing because it doesn't take much at all. I mean, um, my daughter and my sons think I'm a crybaby. Uh, they, they, they've, seen me, they've seen me cry. I I cry, get this, I cry watching Undercover Boss sometimes. <laughs> now, some of you that are laughing, you know what I mean, right? How many of you have cried watching Undercover Boss? See, thank you. We value authenticity here, all right? I'm usually watching TV when I watch TV by myself, and, and I'm okay till it gets to the very end, and then the CEO is recalling, uh, he's got this employee in front of him, and this employee is so awesome and so great, but... Uh, they need a house, or they need a car, or there's some medical procedure that they need, and they don't have the money, and the music is playing in the background, and the CEO goes, I want to give you a new house. And I start crying. I'm going, 
I just want to say to Adam King, I just want to give you a new house. I don't want you to live in that house. I want you to live in Copperleaf. Oh, we're going to buy you a new house. And I get goosebumps even thinking about it. Adam, that's not going to happen if you're in here. But <laughs> it makes me cry. I cried when my son's bride came down the aisle. Not my bride, my son's bride. Those doors opened at the back of the church, and she was standing there with her dad, and I'm looking at Jordan, and he seems fine, and I'm crying. <laughs> he gets down the aisle, stands in front of me, her dad does, with his bride, beautiful. He's dry-eyed. I'm sobbing. I can't even get the words that I'm supposed to say out of my mouth. I want you to know I've embraced my new emotions. And I'll tell you this, and I told my boys when they were little boys, real men cry. That's what real men do. If you dads, and I mean this seriously, if you dads tell your, your boys on a regular basis, suck it up, don't let me see you cry, you're a bad dad, stop that. I'm serious. You need to teach him that real men aren't afraid to cry. I used to tell my boys, cry like a man. I mean, let it out. You hurt your finger, cry, sob, let the tears flow, cry like a man. I'll tell you this, a good cry will do you well. And it certainly did for Nehemiah. But I want to ask you, when was the last time you cried over the broken condition of our culture? Those of you that are troubled and even maybe potentially angry over our political situation in the United States of America one time, uh, right now, let me ask you, have you in the last weeks and months, have you actually cried and wept for the condition of our culture? Have you wept for the broken lives of your neighbors? I say it so often, but just beyond these beautiful doors with the nice cars sitting in the driveway, some of you know it, it's true in your neighborhood, there are broken, hurting families beyond those doors. Have you cried for those things? Have you cried over the devastating circumstances of a friend who's in crisis, who's in crisis? Have you shed any tears for the billions of people across the globe uh, that live in abject poverty, unlike you and I can't even begin to imagine? You see, Nehemiah cried for the things that mattered to God, the things that were outside of his own little world. Now, thirdly, uh, we see in uh, verses 5 to 11 that Nehemiah prayed. Now, we did a series a few years ago in the book of Nehemiah, and this should be at least one sermon, probably two sermons. This is the first of 12 prayers that are prayed in this book of Nehemiah. He acknowledges who God is. He repents of his sin, very important, and the sins of his people. And he prays for God to open doors for him to be an answer to the, to the problem that is currently existing. I'm convinced that many of us pray prayers that we are the answer to. Right? We pray prayers... And I pray prayers for you saying, God, do this through them. How many of you are good at praying prayers like that? God, you need to do this for them. Rather than assuming that maybe God wants to use us. We pray prayers like this. God, please provide for this need that this person or this family has. <clears throat> Have you ever thought about maybe God wants you to meet that need? Maybe you are the answer to the prayer that you're praying. We pray things like, God, give them strength in this difficult time. Isn't that a good Christian prayer, right? We hug them. Mm, I'm going to be praying for you this week. 
Maybe God intends you to be used for their strength. Maybe you're going to be his arms around them this week. Have you ever prayed that way? Have you ever prayed, God, please let me see so-and-so come into a relationship with Jesus. I want to bring them to church, and Brian and Jerry, you know, in the course of their sermon, they're going to talk about the gospel. And Have you ever thought that maybe God just simply wants you to live out the gospel, and he wants you to share the gospel with them, the good news? We pray so often, God, please provide for the needs of the ministry, maybe here at Northwest. You ever thought about that maybe rather than praying that prayer, you just need to assume that God wants you to be generous and help meet the needs of Northwest Community Church? Nehemiah, the text says, prayed and he fasted for four months. Now, I don't think that the, in the context here, I certainly hope not, uh, that he's fasted for four months, right? I mean, if that's biblical, that's kind of where I draw the line. I'm not, I'm not sure that I, it, no, just kidding. But he prayed for a very long time. He was in an attitude of prayer, and he was in agony as he prayed and as he cried and as he thought about the news that he'd heard. We can't imagine praying for four minutes or even four hours. But Nehemiah was so broken that he prayed for four months and considered what God wanted his response to be to what he had heard. And in chapter 2, it's obvious what, what God lays on Nehemiah's heart. Chapter 2, verse 5 says, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Fourthly, Nehemiah decided he would take action. The truth is, many of us never get to that place on our journey, do we? Now, we assume that God is going to use someone else. That God doesn't intend to use us, that we see the need, but, but God's going to use somebody else. Imagine how easy it would have been for Nehemiah to pray, God just sent me, you know, God in heaven. I'm going to fast and pray for four months. I'm really burdened about this. Lay it on the hearts of some people that don't have as much to lose as I do to go back there and rebuild those walls. If you're honest, have you ever really prayed a prayer like that? Because the truth of the matter is, God knows our hearts, right? God laid on the heart of somebody else because, of parentheses, I got too much to lose here. <laughs> I, can't, I can't possibly be the answer to this, to this problem. Use somebody else. Just don't use me, but I want to pray about it. Many of us say we're willing to go, but we plan as if we're going to stay here a very, very long time. One author wrote these words, The worst sin toward our fellow creatures is not to hate them, but to be indifferent to them. He wrote, that is the essence of inhumanity, when we are indifferent. And that statement summarizes very well Jesus' parable that we see in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, where Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Most of you are familiar with it. People passed right on by with all kinds of excuses rationalizing why they were not part of the solution and that's what some of us do today we have all kinds of excuses let me give you three just real quickly number one it's the it's the excuse of if we're really honest right i don't really care yeah it's true some of us if we're really honest we have to admit that we don't really care 
Because if we care, if our hearts break for the things that break God's hearts, then we're moved to action like Nehemiah was. And for many of us, if we're honest, we just really don't care. We're comfortable and we really don't care. Secondly, some of us will say this, that's not my gift. I've used that excuse before. Why don't you do this? Well, that's not my gift. God has gifted me to do this, not this. That's not my gift. And I fear some of us have used this excuse far too often to rationalize why we won't get our hands dirty and get involved in the things that break the heart of God. Can I get on a soapbox? I haven't been on one yet, so I'm just going to step on one for just a second. I hear this over and over and over again in our children's ministry. It's not my gift. It's amazing to me, all of you that have children, and then when it comes time to just a little bit of involvement in children's ministry, that's not your gift. I feel sorry for your kids if that's not your gift. Can I just say that? I mean, just being honest, loving, being transparent. I don't know that God sits up in heaven and he, and he says to uh, this pastor, I'm going to give you this ability to be able to teach biblical truth. That's your gift. And I'm going to give to you this gift of evangelism. And you're going to go to the far corners of the earth and you're going to share the good news of the gospel. And you're going to tell stories all during your retirement. And then he looks at the next person and he goes, I'm going to give you the gift of changing diapers. That's what I'm going to give you. know that he does that i don't know it's an issue of it's a gift i think it's an issue of baby's diapers need to be changed somebody's got to change them right (laughs) thank you laird knows that how come the rest of you don't right i mean sometimes it's as simple as that it doesn't have to be your gift if you've never changed a baby's diaper we can teach you all right If you've never just done crowd control with a group of elementary kids, we can teach you how to do that. You don't necessarily have to get up in front of a group of people and teach or do something, but you can help. It doesn't have to be your gift. Here's the truth. God uses people who are not gifted every moment of every day. Aren't you thankful for that? This is the example right now. Kayla asked me this morning, Dad, are you ready to preach? And I said, there's no unconfessed sin in my life to my knowledge. Could be some, but not to my knowledge. I've studied, but now I get here and I just say, God, I'm going to open up my mouth and you speak through me. Why? Because God uses people who aren't necessarily the most gifted all the time. And God wants to do that with you. Lastly, we use this as an excuse, I don't have time. We hear that a lot in our culture, don't we? A lot of people that would rather give money than give time because we just don't have time. If you don't have time to care about the things that matter to God, can I suggest to you this morning that you're too busy? If you've gotten to the point where your family is so busy, where you're running around to this, this game and that game and doing this and doing that and the dance class, we got you got to get a new minivan every couple of years because you're racking up the miles on it because you're running hither and yon and your kids don't give a... They don't care about so much of this stuff Can I be honest with you? Some of you, you care much more about it than your kids care about it. Can I get an amen, kids? And you're frustrating some of your kids. And you're living busy, incredibly busy lives. And when it comes to your heart breaking for the things that break 
break God's heart, you don't have time for your heart to be broken because you're too busy doing things that don't matter. And you're going to come to the end of your life, and as I've, I've set it up a dozen times here at Northwest, you're going to realize that you spent your time involved in things that in the end don't really matter. I'm afraid many of us spend much too much time on us. And we probably need to reevaluate our schedules. I think it comes down to this. The problem for many of us is what has been called depraved indifference. You see, there is a caste system in heaven. But it's exactly backwards from the caste system this world naturally creates. This world applauds and esteems the wealthy and the powerful and the privileged and the talented. That's not how God's system works. Jesus came and he proved it. He took the lowest spot and he was gone. The bigger you get in the kingdom of heaven, the lower position you take. The special ones in God's kingdom are the weak ones. The ones who can't fight for themselves, the ones who can't speak for themselves, the ones that don't have someone to feed them, the ones that don't have someone to protect them. And Jesus says, those are the prized ones. And you treat them as the royalty here on earth. And the way you treat them is ultimately the way you're treating me. What you do unto the least of these is how you're ultimately treating your God. Christianity is taking what has been purchased by the cross, the behavior of heaven, nature of Jesus Christ and transplant it into the heart of men and women down here on earth so that they behave not like this world but like heaven and so when this world sees them they're different there is something odd about them they are from another realm what does it look like it's noble it's brave it's courageous it's selfless it is willing to spend itself for the weak I was doing some study on Liberia. If you want to be disturbed, start studying Liberia. This four-year-old boy who's sitting on the side of the road, no one to comfort, no one to take him in, no shelter, no food, nothing. So in the middle of that night, I wake up. And it's like God had already deposited a question. It was waiting to meet me when I popped awake in the middle of the night, two in the morning. I had this picture of this little boy in Liberia in front of me. And God asked me a question. What if that was Hudson? My four-year-old. Eric, well, what if that was Hudson? Uh, you don't mess with a father's heart. What if that was Hudson? If my boy was on the side of a road across the world from me, suffering, totally alone, not knowing what's happening. He's not old enough to comprehend this. He's abandoned. He has no one to fight for his cause, no one to give him a voice. He doesn't even know how to articulate his circumstances. He's hungry and no one's feeding him. He's starving to death. If my son is in that situation, stick a concrete wall in front of me and I claw through with my bare hands. This is my son we're talking about. And if I couldn't get there, I would call up every friend I have and I would say, I have a son over in Liberia. You call yourself my friend. I need you to get on a plane. And I need you to get to him. I'll give you the coordinates. I'll do whatever it takes. But I need you to get to my son and be a father to him. God's response. Eric, 
That's my Hudson. That is my Hudson. And he's looking to us. And he's saying, I'm calling up everyone I know. Everyone on my list that calls himself by my name, that says they're a friend of God. And I'm saying, my son is over in Liberia. Are you willing to get on the plane and get to him? We have a cause, but we don't want to see it. And it's when we finally acknowledge the fact that something is wrong with us, not with the world out there. If we start with this little group here and we say, God, you need to fix this. I suffer from depraved indifference. So do you. Oh, we care. It's not that that doesn't move us at some level to hear about this little child over in library. We care, but we can go home tonight and sleep just fine. How is that? It's because there's an indifference to that life. And it's naturally born within us that that life isn't affecting us. It's not in our backyard. We're not related to it. It's someone else's issue. In fact, we start quoting scriptures about God being a father of the fatherless. We're like, thank you, God, that you're a father of that child. He says, uh, remember, you call yourself my body. I'm not there except through you. Your hands, Eric, those are my hands. Your feet, those are my feet. That heart, that's my heart. If it's not beating, my heart's not beating on this earth anymore. I work through my body. I'm a father of the fatherless through my body. I rescue the weak and the vulnerable through you. And if you're not doing it, no one is. There is a solution for our disease, which is known as sin. It's Jesus Christ. There's a solution for these dying children. It's Jesus Christ. Might sound overly simplistic. That's it. That is the solution. Because Jesus Christ will change a man like Eric Ludy into a man that feels what Jesus Christ is feeling. And he cannot stay in suburbia USA anymore and do nothing. Heroes are made because they are moved. Not in their head, but in their heart. You have to be moved at such a level where you will shed blood. Jesus Christ was moved. For God so loved the world that he gave. And that son that was given suffered and died. For what? For the cause that is being laid before us tonight. It wasn't head knowledge about the disaster taking place in this world. It was life abandonment unto the cause of those that are dying, unto the eternal souls that are around us. Do we care at the level God cares? Do we carry a burden when we go home tonight? Will we grieve over the fact that those children are God's children? And he is longing for an advocate to stand up and say, I'm willing, God, to fight for what is yours. I'm willing, God, burden me. When Jesus was in Gethsemane, you know what he was there for? He was there for life. He was burdened with the weight of it all for life. And he was willing to sweat great droplets of blood. Are we? For our king and his glory, we will rescue these little ones.
as we close, here's the truth. If you ever want God to do a work through you, He'll first do a work in you. It's imperative. We said it last week, and I want to remind you again that God will break us before He uses us. Some of you wonder why God seems to have never really used you to do anything that you would consider to be significant. Could I suggest to you that it might be because He's yet to really break through to your heart? He'll do a work in us before He does any significant work through us. And if you want God to do a work in you, I, I would suggest that you pray a prayer uh, similar to this. Heal my heart and make it clean. Open up my heart to the things unseen. Show me how to love like you have loved. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I am for your kingdom's cause as I walk from earth into eternity. The truth is, you and I are probably not going to change the world. I thought about this yesterday. That statement brings great comfort to me. (laughs) Because as a type A visionary guy, I like to think that somehow, some way, at some time, God's going to use me to change the world and you to change the world. The truth of the matter is that Probably most of us will not change the world, but we can change someone's world. And people that are on mission with God will have their hearts broken for something. Can I ask you to consider what breaks your heart? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would now do a work in our hearts so that you can do a work through us. I'm so thankful for this ancient story about a really ordinary guy who lived in very comfortable circumstances like many of us do, and yet his heart was broken for the things that mattered to God. God, I so want that to be true of my life and for my uh, friends that I do life with here at Northwest. God, I'm so burdened that I don't want to come to the end and realize that I was vested in the things that really don't matter. And I die, spiritually speaking, a poor man. God, we want to be, we want to be rich in eternal things because we're vested in things that matter, things that count for eternity because our hearts have been broken for the things that break God's heart. And I pray now, Right now, even as we sing this last song, God, I pray that you would use your spirit right now to work through a middle school student, a high school student, a a college student, a single, uh, a a married man or a woman, or or, or maybe even one of our 80-year-olds that's here today. God, use your spirit right now to move in their hearts and maybe for some of them for the first time, begin to break their heart for the thing that breaks yours. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.